We're going to take some time together in, in God's Word, and by God's grace, have His Spirit speak to us and meet us. Thank you for being here. So glad, love it when we can gather, and uh, glad that we can stay after and have some fellowship time, have a meal together, so looking forward to that. Our, our text is in Mark chapter 14 again this week, so if you have a Bible or device and you want to flip over, I'm going to start reading in a few minutes from approximately around verse 43, and uh, so that's where we'll be. I wonder if you, would you agree with me in prayer, just a brief prayer before we start into God's Word. Father in heaven, we are asking for your blessing, and specifically this afternoon, would you help us to look deep into the sorrows of Jesus? To look deep into the sorrows of Jesus so that we might rise up with fresh strength. That the sorrows of Jesus would be for us a unique comfort. that We can only experience by being in you, by knowing you, by placing faith in you. Lord, I ask that you use the sorrows of Jesus to disrupt in our hearts our indifference. Use them to give us a fresh distaste for sin. Use the sorrows of Jesus to attract us more to you with increased gratitude and a renewed consecration towards you. We pray that this would all lead, that we would live lives that the one and only decisive influence in each of our lives would be your word. All through recognizing the sorrows that you bore on our behalf, in Jesus' name, amen. If you've been in my house, or the next time you are in my house, if you go out through the living room just before you exit out the front door, you'll see a little plaque up on the wall. It is a Frisian proverb. Frisian is a language spoken by just a few people up in the northern parts of the Netherlands, northern parts of Germany. And that plaque was in the house for me growing up, and I took it from my parents and said, I want to keep this plaque in my house. It's hanging there, and it says... Which means, and, and thankfully, I'm quite sure, even we have a couple Dutch speakers, nobody speaks Frisian. So if I butchered that, nobody in the room could know. In English, do your duty and let the people talk. In other words, this is a philosophy of how to find yourself, how to know yourself, your identity. Figure out your responsibility, know what you're supposed to do, know your place, do what is right, and don't bother with what anybody else says. It doesn't matter what, let them talk. Don't let other people influence you. Now, philosophy is a little bit outdated. If we were to update it to current culture, you'd probably say, um, discover your dream and let the people talk. Do what you want for yourself, and let the people talk. Don't let anybody tell you who you're supposed to be. Don't let anybody tell you you can't do and be who you want to be. That might be a better modernized version. 
But friends, when a person follows Christ, neither of these philosophies are right. There might be slight ounces of truth in both, but pounds of error. To walk in Christ is completely different. When we become a Christian, our identity is then in Christ. And then the determinative factor in all we say and all we do is the Word of God. So let's update the plaque for us in Christ. Fulfill God's Word and let the people talk. Fulfill God's Word in your life. Let the people talk. Don't let anybody's opinion dissuade you. You have your marching orders. You have your identity. And that's what it is. We're in chapter 14 of the gospel according to Mark. And in chapter 14, we move into uh, the next phase of who Jesus is. The entire gospel account has been answering a couple questions. Who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him? And in chapter 14... We take a turn into what we know as the passion of Jesus. It is the season, the week of his sufferings. So we have 13 chapters of amazing, almost beyond comprehension of the authority of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the wisdom of Jesus, the care, the compassion, the mercy of Jesus. We're getting this over and over again for 13 chapters. And now he leaves the dinner table. He leaves the Last Supper and enters into his suffering. Add to the list of who Jesus is. He is a suffering servant. As we started in this section, first two weeks ago now, we looked at what I call the agony of Jesus. So breaking down some details of his suffering, he started by praying in the garden, and he experienced a kind of agony, a kind of strange kind of agony as he was wrestling with God about the reality that he was facing of drinking the cup of God's wrath. And this brought him down and crushed him in his soul. It was overwhelming to him. We talked about his agony. As soon as he's done praying, he gets up. And next, he faces his betrayal and his arrest. We're going to call this the sorrows of Jesus. He's the man of sorrows. Let's read our text together. I think I have, beginning with verse 43, let me just back up a, a sentence and a half or two to the middle of 41, where Jesus is praying and he finally says to his disciples who have been sleeping three times, it is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. 
But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Must have been a very disillusioning moment for the disciples to see their great rabbi, their great teacher, their savior go from signs and wonders to agony and sorrow. It's often the disillusionment of many Christians in our Christian walk, in our experience. When we go from glorious salvation and the blessing of God's spirit to agonies and sorrows. But these sorrows are not meant to be disillusioning, but in a strange, unique way, comforting and strengthening for us. Jesus stepped into these sorrows and endured them for one stated reason in our text, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And as Jesus kept the scriptures as the determinative and decisive factor in his life, we now get the wonderful hindsight of realizing that because he did that, we see his resurrection and ascension to glory, and we see the salvation of God that was accomplished so that we have God's grace in our lives today. This means that when we look deep into the sorrows of Jesus, we can be moved in an unusual way. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows.
What's unique about the sorrows here in the text that we read is that they were sorrows on him at the hands of sinners. He rose up from prayer and said, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. The real sorrow is in how friends acted like enemies. And enemies were sinners who were accusing and condemning truly the only one righteous person. Jesus bore these griefs, he bore these sorrows as part of God's redemptive plan to save us. We're going to look at these sorrows. We can make a qualification at the very beginning that the point here is that this is not intended to communicate that all sufferings that we endure are intended to be endured passively. The New Testament teaches much about how we are supposed to respond when being sinned against. So I don't want us to read this and feel like every time somebody's sinning against me, the only Christ-like option is to just let them sin against me. There are situations that the New Testament teaches us and calls us as a church and fellow believers to, to step in. Let's not let this call us to sit idly by when injustices are taking place, when abuse might be taking place. That's not what we're called to. So I want to qualify that and not miss the point of what's happening here. But Jesus was called, and he was following the scriptures, and he endured this suffering at the hands of men. Our perspective ought to be that we are, in fact, living by God's word when we carry out, whether they be instructions of stopping sin, confronting sin, promoting justice where injustice is taking place. So the concept for us as New Testament Christians is to be thinking in terms of how are we fulfilling God's word. And the aspect of suffering that we need to understand in our lives is that as we're fulfilling God's word, we will encounter suffering because we're fulfilling God's word. And that's the kind of suffering we can find great grace and peace in. Four sorrows of Jesus at the hands of sinners. First, he was betrayed by a friend. He was betrayed by a friend. Judas is identified at the outset of this section. We know from the Last Supper, the account there, Jesus identified him. One of you is going to betray me. And by the time the supper was over, it was clear Judas was the one. And one of the texts says, at that moment, Satan entered his heart. And Judas began to plot how he was going to betray the Savior. He was one of the twelve, Mark tells us. Well, of course, we knew that. But Mark is trying to make a point. Judas was an insider. He was a friend. He was one of the twelve. One of the twelve. One of the twelve. Friends, for over three and a half years now, about three and a half years time, no human beings on the planet had as much personal investment of Jesus Christ, the Savior, creator of the world. 
These are the 12 guys he invested himself in significantly. He poured into them. And Judas was one of them. He betrayed him with a kiss. It's the sign. That's the plan. Guys, here's how you're going to know who is the one you're supposed to seize. I will go up to him and I will kiss him. An expression of friendship, an expression of affection. But it was the proverbial embrace with a knife in the hand. An embrace and the knife goes in the back. The kiss on the face, the knife in the back. The worst kind of betrayal. The sorrow of a betrayal is measured by the closeness between the betrayer and the betrayed. The closer the two are, the more painful the sorrow is of the betrayal. David in the Psalms captures this. Psalm 55 is known for this, where David writes, for it's not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolent with me, then I could hide from him. But it's you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. My companion. That's what makes the sorrow almost unbearable. If it were somebody I was expecting to hate me, I could handle it. That would be understandable. But it was one of the 12 who did it. When a friend turns into an enemy, it's one of the most challenging trials that we face. It's one of the most difficult emotional struggles that we walk through as people. It's not only a deep sorrow that I know all of you to some degree have experienced, but it's not just the sorrow. It's also one of the greatest temptations to throw aside God's word. And act out of sync with what God has called us to. It's one of the easiest situations to respond contrary to God's word and to justify it. The wrong against us is often so blinding that we find it very easy to respond in kind. We find it so easy to respond and throw off, okay, what is God calling me to? What does the word of God say to me here while I'm being double-crossed, betrayed by a friend? It's one of the easiest moments in our lives to say, whatever God says, it doesn't matter. It doesn't count for me now because I'm being so badly treated. This hurts so badly. I'm at my worst when I feel betrayed. But our point is Jesus remained at his best. Jesus was unchanged, undeterred, while he was being betrayed by a friend. The one he invested so much of his time and energy to. The one who had the privileged, up-close view of who Jesus was. 
If you were to interview, who is Jesus? Is he great? Is he wonderful? Tell me about him. Judas would have been one of the few people on the planet that could have given you an honest report of how marvelous, how magnificent, how powerful Jesus was. And he was the one that turned on him. But Jesus endured the worst kind of betrayal, and his resolve was to obey God, and it was unshaken. This did not alter his course. He did not react in kind. He did not retaliate. He did not defend himself. He entrusted himself to the Father's plan. He was betrayed by a friend. And he remained a friend. Second, he was completely misunderstood. The Sanhedrin issued the warrant for his arrest. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish religious, political, legal council compromised of chief, compromised, comprised of, comprised of chief priests, scribes, and elders. And Mark tells us that to make the arrest a crowd came with him with swords and clubs. Luke tells us that there were temple officers coming with him, and John says a band of soldiers. When you piece it all together, this looks like one of the greatest overkill arrests ever in the history of time. They came with swords and clubs. The, you know, the plan was a quick and quiet arrest, but obviously they came prepared for a fight. Does your curiosity get peaked a little bit when you're driving and you see a police officer pulled somebody over on the side of the road and you got to stop and take a look? And I don't know about you, does the conversation in the car start going about speculating about what was going on there, what happened? And then when you drive by the AMPM and you see eight police cars in the parking lot there, do you start to speculate and think, okay, something's going down there? I think if you were to drive by this, it'd be like having 10 police cars, the SWAT team, the U.S. Marshals, and the feds all showing up on the same place. And you go by and you say, something big is going down here. All the officials law enforcement were stepping in here to make an arrest <laughs> could they not have just sent a message jesus you're under arrest come on down to the temple for questioning could they not have sent out just one police officer knock on the door jesus here's a warrant for your arrest will you come with me peacefully they come out armed to the gill, clubs, swords. And Jesus responds, how unnecessary. You completely misunderstand who I am. Have you been listening to anything that I've been saying? Are you coming out against a robber to capture me? Do you think I'm some kind of hoodlum or something, some insurrectionist stirring up a rebellion? You've seen me. I've been for days now just sitting in the temple next to you. You've observed me. There I was teaching, talking, making disciples, praying for people. And now you show up with an army? 
the disconnect between who Jesus is and how they were responding to him could not have been greater. But this friend of sinners is now being numbered with the transgressors. The tension was very high in this arrest, in this confrontation. You've got a kind of mob with swords and clubs. On the other side, you've got Jesus and his disciples and some followers. And of course, someone flinches. And you know it had to be Peter. It had to be Peter. Pulls out his sword. Takes a swing at the servant of the high priest. He ducks. It takes off his ear. Now, I'm not sure we can fully appreciate the tension. And if you think about this kind of situation, one flinch and it's chaos and bloodshed. Somebody makes a move. I mean, everybody is holding steady. But if somebody flinches, somebody looks cross-eyed, somebody takes a shot, somebody takes a swing, once that signal is set, can you imagine? Everybody's ready to fight. And it's all it would take. And yet, Jesus stops it. All indications are that thing should have turned into a chaotic bloodshed riot at that moment. And Jesus stops him. The other gospel writers tell, him, tell us that he actually healed the man's ear and begins to quell the violence, stop the violence. When I study and I read this story, it, it makes me really wonder, what was the greater miracle, that he healed the man's ear or that he stopped the riot from happening? That this somehow prince of peace was able to be in such highly tense situation and stop it. And in the end, the arrest was made without incident, without trouble. Once that happened, it says everybody fled. Well, back up. This was no small misunderstanding the contrast between who Jesus was and how they were responding. Let me ask you a question. Do you know the difficulty? Do you know the frustration? Do you know the sorrow of being misunderstood? Have you ever been misunderstood? Anybody ever misjudged you? Anybody ever approached you and assumed you were bad, you were wrong? They had you labeled, they had you pegged, they had you figured out, they've got your motives all figured out. Do you know what that's like? Do you know the difficulty of that? These are some of the most powerful temptations to respond in kind. When somebody completely misunderstands us and approaches us with all kinds of assumptions, when we're accused, we tend to accuse. When someone is unjustly angry with us, we tend to get angry as well. When someone threatens violence towards us, we get violent. 
Once these wheels start turning, it seems almost impossible to stop them. Have you felt it inside your soul? Have you been in situations like this? And you look at yourself and say, who am I? What is happening to me? We get sucked into it, drawn into it, and we are almost out of control with, with an ability to stop us from just responding in kind. Lo and behold, none other than Peter, writing his epistle later, is the one that tells us something about Jesus, that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Isn't that amazing? It was Peter drew the sword. Peter lashed out. The tension was so thick, he couldn't stop himself. He took a shot. And he watched Jesus bring peace into that violent situation. And he says, amazing. Our Savior was reviled and didn't revile in return. Third, he was forsaken by all. Once this happened, they seized him. Once everybody realized we're not going to fight our way out of this, Jesus seems to be going willingly. Jesus is complying. Everybody panicked. Everyone who was on the side of Jesus, everyone who was on that side of the room, knew they were in grave danger and a kind of panic set in. We're not going to fight. We're not going to respond. We're not going to resist. Is that the plan? If that's the plan, there was a panic. And everyone, everyone fled. It says they all fled. Mark's having a little fun with the word all. Back at the Lord's Supper, when Jesus blessed the cup and drank the cup, it said, and they all drank it. When he said, you're going to forsake me, when the, when the shepherd is struck, you're all going to flee. And they all responded and said, none of us are going to do this. We will all stay with you. And now Jesus was arrested, and they all fled the scene. It's a unique kind of sorrow to be forsaken. It's a difficult kind of sorrow. We thrive on companionship. We were made for community life, to experience life together, a kind of commitment to one another. And Jesus had these 12 men in particular that he invested in over three years now. They spent time together, learned together, helped one another, expressed their commitment to one another, and especially to Jesus. And in a moment, it all disappeared. We've all been let down by someone before. Someone we relied on, someone we looked to. Someone we felt like we had a kind of agreement with. Maybe we didn't say it out loud, but I thought, I really thought we were in this together. Only to find out one day the commitment is gone. 
Was it ever there? We don't know. But it's gone and it brings a unique kind of sorrow into our hearts. These again are moments where we often find ourselves so willing to disobey God. Where the word of God becomes less and less the decisive, determinative component in our lives when we're forsaken. You, are you you're making the connection between the difficulty of the sorrow, the temptation to set aside God's word, where we get blinded by the sorrow, we lose sight of living our lives to fulfill the word of God in them. And the excuses begin to come. Jesus, who was forsaken by all, made good on his promise to never leave us nor forsake us. He was falsely accused. Fourth point. Let's, let's pass on this point. Falsely accused. They tried to get a testimony against him. We'll skip over this. I think you're grasping the concept. You can imagine falsely accused. They couldn't do it. He was a man of truth. He spoke the truth. He was the only one in the place that spoke the truth. And yet the result was he was the one who was condemned. Everybody was trying. They, Okay, I'm not quite going to skip over it. It's one thing to be falsely accused. When you find out there's a team of people trying to come up with testimony to accuse you. Can you imagine, okay, we've got a bunch of journalists, or people out there saying, okay, let's, let's dig up some dirt. Let's fabricate some dirt. Let's do something. We, we want to condemn this man. And let's find some testimony. They couldn't do it. The testimonies were not adding up. There was nothing admissible in court that would pass muster. Being lied to is difficult. Being lied about is more difficult. Jesus remained silent. Then he spoke once. Spoke the truth. He spoke the truth. The sentence was, condemn him. Okay. Conclusion. The betrayal, being misunderstood, being forsaken, being falsely accused, these are the sorrows of Jesus. At his agony in the garden, his experience, he has sorrows when he's in the hands of sinners. He did not only endure them all, he endured them all in order that the scriptures would be fulfilled. He endured them all in order to bear all our sorrows. He endured them all in order to be the means for us to be ultimately set free from them all. Okay, Ron, what about the naked guy? Were you, were you waiting? Were you kind of wondering? What about the, the streaker? What, what, why? 
What happened? What, what's going on with this guy running out naked? Why did Mark include this strange detail that no other gospel included? I'll give you some proposals. Take these for what they're worth. Some would speculate that this was Mark, sort of his anonymous signature of the book. Possibility. Church history contains a long list of a lot of possibilities. Many theologians have speculated who this person is. Truth is, none of us know. Reasons to include it. Sometimes in the Gospels, random details are included in order to, in such a way, add authenticity to the testimony. Richard Balkin wrote a wonderful book of Jesus and the eyewitnesses. It was like one of, the, one of the ways that we are sort of convinced that these accounts are true is that they include details that appear to be kind of meaningless but could only be included because somebody was actually there observing what took place. Yeah, I remember one guy got so scared he ran off without his clothes. The detail also does just add to the reality of just how tense and frantic and chaotic things were in this situation at the arrest. Let me ask you a question. How scared do you have to be to run home without your clothes on? What would it take for you? And it does sort of emphasize it must have been a highly tense situation. And this man proves it. I think there is another very interesting, I trust, helpful way of understanding why this is in here. I think there's a way that this man can, in a roundabout way, point us to redemption. There was another couple people in a garden where nakedness was an issue back in Genesis chapter 3. Two people that God created and placed in the garden, but Satan came and deceived, persuaded them to disobey God. In our story, Satan entered the heart and mind of Judas and persuaded him to betray the Savior. Their rebellion against the Word of God exposed their nakedness, and they felt ashamed. And God declared, he says, now they know both good and evil. You know, when we read that in the English, we just think, you mean like they had no cognitive knowledge of evil, and now they're aware that evil exists, and that's the problem? Actually, when the Bible talks about knowing something, we're talking about more of an, an intimate, participative knowing now they are living and functioning both good and evil. That component caused them to be disqualified from eating 
from the tree of life. And they were therefore expelled from the garden. Our man ran out of the garden naked. This couple was expelled out of the garden and we could say, okay, not naked, but yes, kind of. The fig leaves that they sowed for themselves were totally worthless and inadequate coverings. God provided coverings by killing an animal and making clothes out of the skins of the animals, and that was a covering for their nakedness, but it was a temporary covering until the true Lamb of God could come and be the kind of covering that they actually needed, the kind that would cleanse them from unrighteousness and actually make them right with God and make them qualified, if you will, to come again and eat of the tree of life. There's a long time between naked people expelled from that garden and this naked guy running out of this garden. Jesus was there in this garden. And he was the one. He was the one that was going to, while Adam and Eve expelled and the cherubim flaming sword guarding the entrance, a, a veil that they could not pass through, Jesus comes and breaks down that barrier, breaks down that veil and makes a way back into the garden of God, into the presence of God, and cleansed and able to eat of the tree of life. Maybe you think that was a little far-fetched. I thought it was a beautiful connection. Take it for what it's worth. Hebrews 10, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus was the one that would make a way to bring us back, to be clothed in his righteousness. A couple brief points of application straight from J.C. Ryle's commentary. J.C. Ryle, Anglican pastor in the 1800s. There is a contrast here between Jesus and all his followers. J.C. Ryle says one of the things that we should take from this passage is that we should see the disciples, we should see Jesus, and you and I should walk away and not be overconfident in our own strength. We're no different than those disciples. They all fled. We all fled. They betrayed. We betrayed. All that was in their hearts resides in our hearts. James tells us we all stumble in many ways. 
Never read your Bible and look down your nose at the sinners in the Bible. It's a mirror. Let the scriptures be that mirror. Secondly, let us learn to be charitable in our judgments of other Christians. These disciples rose to greater heights after these miserable failures, these embarrassing failures. J.C. Riles writes, let's, let's not expect too much from others. Let's not be too quick to declare no grace in your life. Let's read this and understand. We're in this together. And finally, in closing, worship team, come on up. Let me just read you a paragraph from J.C. Ryle. He writes this, finally, let us leave the passage with a deep sense of our Lord's ability to sympathize with his believing people. If there's one trial greater than another, it is the trial of being disappointed in those we love. It is a bitter cup, which all true Christians have frequently to drink. Ministers fail them. Relations fail them. Friends fail them. One cistern after another proves to be broken and to hold no water. But let them take comfort in the thought that there is one unfailing friend, namely Jesus, who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and has tasted all our sorrows. Jesus knows what it is to see friends and disciples failing him in the time of need, yet he bore it patiently and loved them despite everything. He is never tired of forgiving. Can I say that again? He is never tired of forgiving. Let us try to be the same. Jesus, at any rate, will never fail us. It is written in Lamentations 3, his compassions never fail. My prayer was that we would look deep into the sorrows of Jesus and with that look, draw from it a unique kind of comfort. He bore our sorrows to set us free. Let's stand.